Hello and welcome to Rear View, the show where we get to chat to the fascinating people from the motoring universe, learning how they got to where they are today. Hello, I'm Andrew and this is episode 11. I'm delighted to welcome to, on the show today my guest, Dr. Jonathan Kershaw. I think you're the first doctor, by the way. Could you let the listeners know <laughs> what your connection to the motoring world is, please? I'm long time interested in cars. I've studied cars throughout my academic career so far, which has got me as far as a PhD, uh, but not a proper academic job yet. So basically just a long time obsessive and enthusiast and tree hugging petrol. That that is something that intrigued me greatly about you. Um is how can one be a tree hugging petrol head? Yeah, it's not easy. Um <laughs> I've, I've always had an obsession with the car. Um but we need to, there is a problem. We need to do things better. And ways of how we can possibly reconcile um, a regard for the car, the use of the car, um, necessity for the car in places uh, with the environmental imperative. Um, so hopefully what I've done so far and what hopefully I can do in the future um, can play a little part in going towards it. Right, well, before I dive too deep into your PhD and the work you're doing academically and other interesting things, I want to go back and um, something I talk to everybody who comes on the show, I'm, I'm very interested to know when people first started getting interested in cars. I'm also interested to know whether anyone helped you along with that interest or whether it was um, self-propelled, as it were. Well, like I said, it's, it's always been there. Um, I've always had a thing for the car. Uh, my mother tells me that when I was little, I could sort of like match up numbers of matchbox cars to the correct model, you know, at will. Sort of thing, you know. <laughs> What's number six? Oh, that's a Volkswagen Beetle. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's always been there. Um you know, matchbox cars were a thing from an early age, you know, Pinkies and Corgis and all that. Um, reading car magazines in my youth, you know, collection of car books, it's just it's just always been there. So in, in school, did you do anything, or did we, were you doing particular lessons lined up with maybe following a career with something to do with cars, or was it just a real big interest and hobby's not quite the right word when you're a school? when you're at school because you've got no way to uh, access them. But if you know what I mean, if that's that, you know, that, um, again, some at school, perhaps me, possibly, uh, obsession is perhaps a good word. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is. I always say the car is how I understand the world. You know, the car, it's a contemporaneous artifact, so it just pertains to, you know, different cultures, different histories, different times. Um, at school, nothing particularly. I mean, uh, all-level art, and um, you know, I was had early dreams of, oh, you know, I fancy doing the car design at Lanchester Polytechnic, mm. uh, but uh, failed my all-level art. I passed it after a reset, but um, then I thought, no, nah, no, nah, that, that's gone. Let's do something else. I've, like bumbled my way geographically along, I suppose. <laughs> I didn't do anything terribly technical at school. I didn't do physics or anything like that. 
Um, so, no, it, it, it just was an obsession. You know, I used to get my copy of Motor on a Wednesday morning and take that to school and read it at break times and stuff like that. When did, uh, when did you start doing the sort of acad- more academic side into cars then, into the motion world? Started, uh, I did start my geography degree in 2003 as a very mature student. Um, I'd been managing a betting shop for years and it was making me ill, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to uni, um, managed to, because I'd had an early stint at higher education in the 80s when we used to get grants mm. and left after the first year, um, I still had that status for. The grant, it almost like it carried over. Oh, right. So I was very lucky that I was, like, funded that way. Um, I had to pay for the first year myself, but uh, apart from that, um, it was grant-funded. And looking at human geography and various, you know, like uh, economic geography and, and postmodernism and all this kind of thing, and I kept thinking, oh, this works with the car. Um and so I did my geography dissertation on what was called Making Your Mark, M-A-R-Q-V, mm-hmm. the car. And so I managed to apply that to that. And it was during my second year when I was doing a module on climate change and the evidence thereof for the past 100,000 years or so. And it occurred to me that... Well, yes, the climate has changed before, but it's never happened so quickly. Mm. This is the problem. It's not the fact that it's the rate. The last time we had these huge changes, you know, it it didn't affect humans, not in the way that it will do. And this is where I started sort of like like an environmental awakening, if you like. Mm. Because like most people, I just haven't really thought. And, yeah, it was... Just like to tie things in with the car environment that way. Your PhD, could you <laughs> explain? Um, could you explain to us what that was about and how you came up with the idea to uh, pursue that? Um, well, as I said about the environmental impacts of the car on the transport, which I looked at during my masters when I was looking at football supporter transport, you like at a shift from everybody going in cars to using. Uh, buses and trains, you know, even if they're provided by clubs, sort of thing. You mm. know, so many tons of carbon dioxide. Um, and I've had this idea um, about what I call consuming the car, about how you know we regard the car as cultural artifact and as avatar and all this kind of thing. And now that's not really regarded as a thing when it comes to the environmental impact of the car. You know, it's. Lots has been done about the technologies and the impracticalities of low-carbon vehicles and everything else, but not a lot about how we regard the car, how we feel the car. So, um, sorry to cut you off there, but um, is that uh, along the lines of you can, if you know a car, you know from what era it is because, um, if that's quite the right question, but particular cars are resonating with particular times so it's like there's you know there's the american 50s and 60s cars and then there's you know uh if you come to more our corner of the uh of twitter and the internet there's the 70s british cars (laughs) 
and the love that is lavished on them, uh, sometimes misguided, but the love that's lavished on them, is it that sort of thing that you were, is it the, the cultural impact of them? Yeah, it's not so much about, because lots have been done about what drives the car, whether this is internal combustion or petrol or diesel, whether this is hybrid, whether this is electric, whatever, but mm-hmm. what drives what drives the car? What drives us? Why are some people obsessed with power? You know, why do some people are quite, some people just quite happy with some anonymous box? Why do some people just dislike the car completely? And so I, I wanted to try and see, tie in this consumption of the car, this regard of the car, which everybody's different, and how we can, how that might impact on an uptake of low carbon vehicles. You know, it's like I say, are people obsessed with power and performance? Uh, can we move towards electric vehicles? You know, are mm. people bothered at all? Uh, do they just want something that works? Yeah. And it's this type of thing uh, that I was trying to tap into, and as well as establish like the condition of uh, electric vehicle rollout in this country at the same time. So it's uh, along the lines of why do um, many people see the car as just a tool, as an appliance? Yeah. Yet, if you go into um, the particular corner of Twitter I occupy, and that you you do as well, we get to, there's people there that it means so much more and, it, and it's working that out was it that's that's what yes. you were doing yeah okay yeah right. okay. that kind of thing and working to how can we move towards a low carbon automobility mm. we are going to have to you know th- there is a problem we need to try and do automobility better yeah and as a uh, petrol head as a car obsessive it's almost like can i provide an inside view mm this sort of thing, you know, try and reconcile. So what were the conclusions you came to then? Um, that Apart from it's going to be hard. <laughs> yes, it is going to be hard. Um, that a lot of people, that's, so, some people, even when they say they consume the car, even when they don't realise that they are doing uh, For example, one person I spoke to said, Oh, my car's just from A to B. That's all it is. Hmm. Referred to the car as she and her throughout oh, the interview. Okay. I thought marvelous. This is brilliant. Um, and the ways that you know different people thought that their car said different things about them. Um, like somebody who you know they had a car. They said might project the image that I'm obnoxious and, and whatever, but that's not why I bought it. I bought it for different reasons. I don't think of it like that. Mm. And uh, and that kind of thing, it's... Yeah, I suppose for a lot of people, um, and, and uh, uh, how people perceive others, is we're very... It's very uh, judging books by covers. Yeah, yeah. And more often than that, there's there's many reasons why. And the the aesthetic for the sake of argument, or the badge, is just one of those reasons. And it's maybe, for some people, it's the reason. But for many people, it's, you know, not the main reason. It's just one of reason, many reasons. Yeah, it's, I mean, going back to my, my geography, bachelor's dissertation, you know, making your mark, um, speaking to people who had Volkswagens and people who had Skodas, because they had, they're essentially the same car underneath. 
why did people go to us, Skoda? Why did some go to us, Volkswagen? And there was definite correlation with people with Skodas that were more of a rational, um, even like an engineering bent. And people who have the Volkswagen, there was a definite prestige thing. Mm. Um, there was one somebody I spoke to who had their Skoda Fabia and absolutely loved it, and they wondered if Volkswagens would come to be regarded as expensive Skodas in future rather than cheap Volkswagens. Yeah, so you, you've got there the, the, the mix of someone analytically looking at a vehicle yeah in terms of purchasing against people who it's perhaps a bit more ego driven um yeah and also looking back um looking at the theories i applied my phd it was almost something that's innate if you like just something that's essential to us if you like our our nature our spirit call it what you will Mm -hmm. you know they're of um like an engineering type of rational rationale if you like you know and they were erring towards you know the rational rationale of a skoda sort of thing oh a personality test based on your choice of cars Ooh. sort of thing i know it's original isn't it no 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 but i mean if it was done properly because we we yeah i mean we've all seen the rubbish ones that are just clickbait and things yeah. like that but i mean imagine trying to to do one with some science and academic um thought process behind them that would that would be very interesting to see you know why did you know why did the person want the bmw as compared to well i mean the volkswagen and the the volkswagen group's a perfect example you know do you want the audi the volkswagen the skoda the seat what why is it you picked you know why was this one preferable when you know these four cars are exactly the same underneath they use a lot of the same buttons and things like that. It's just a slightly different shell and a badge. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I mean, when I did my bachelor's degree, I was like applying the postmodern to that. Um, in my PhD, uh, I was applying the notion of affect that was first posited in the 17th century by a philosopher called Spinoza, and which is very much um, a precognitive um rather than a non-cognitive or even a cognitive um, approach. You know, like I say, it's, it's about um, the essentialness of us, uh, our authenticity, if you like. And I was also trying to apply the authenticity uh, of this theory to the car itself, you know, the culture that created a car, mm-hmm. why it was conceived, how it was conceived. Um, because that is very much, you know, part of like you know, for example, you know, the Mini was conceived during a time it was of the Suez Crisis. It was a purely rational engineering answer to that, mm. and yet it went on to become a fashion icon, a style icon, you know, um, a national icon. You know, Isigonis never meant that. Isigonis was a purely rational engineer, yeah, and yet the Mini just became what it did. Yes. Um, you have things like, um, you know, the Citroen DS, you know, I mean, that was a purely rational engineering car. And yes, it, it's us that fetishize it. Mm. it partly helped perhaps by Roland Barthes writing in 1957 in his mythologies, you know, saying the DS is um, a nautilus from the future and comparing cars to cathedrals. And but, that, but that's interesting because I think that, again, um is a marker in 
the cultural history because you know the cars in the the fifties, uh, particularly America, it was all about freedom and hope, and you know particularly after the the Second World War. But as we moved through the decades and you know economic times changed, whether it was more positive or or not, then I, I think the the car is a well, it, uh, as a non-academic and as just an interested party looking at this, it really does tell of the time, and it, it's a ve- it's a very good um, and quick visual marker of what was society going through at that time. How was society feeling? Because the way a car is talked about now, particularly in the last um, twelve fourteen months, is very different to how it was five years ago, which is again much different than it was 15 years ago. Yes, very much so. Um, I mean, as was it about 30 years ago now, I think, when Stephen Bailey, in his book, Sex, Drink and Fast Cars, said more than any other object, the car reflects um, the culture and society that created it. And that's absolutely true. The car is a culturally dynamic artefact. You know, in terms of whether it's in the way it's made, the way it's designed, the way it's regarded and consumed and used. And so with regard to the electric car, um, I wrote in my PhD about you know, the authenticity of the electric car. You had things like um, the Mitsubishi iMeve and the Renault Fluence, which were internal combustion engine cars which basically had all those gubbins ripped out and batteries and electric motors put in. They weren't great. I mean, certainly there were steps ahead of what we had in the 70s and 80s, you know, on the G-Ways and whatever. Mm. But they weren't conceived like that. They were designed to be internal combustion engine cars, whereas you get the Nissan Leaf and the Tesla Model S, even the Renault Twizy, and they were conceived to be electric cars. They were designed from the ground up and developed as such, and it shows. Yeah, I mean that that ties in with the the very first guest, Nia Khan. Um, he um, works with composites, and they're doing in the company he works with. They're doing it in a very interesting way, and it's uh, he the way that they do it is different because it's composite. It's not a steel. It's not steel. It's not pressed metal. So they can and have to think about the design of a vehicle in a different way. And um, that's that's something that is you can see is being done as you mentioned there with the um, with electric cars now they're being designed from the ground up to be an electric motor to have an electric motor and as a consequence that that changes the way certain aspects are executed. One thing when this really when this first really really struck me was a video that somebody flagged up on Twitter. And it was of a company in America that was retrofitting electric motors um, into cars. And one of them was an AC Cobra. And this, the sight and sort of sound of this AC Cobra blatting down the road. I mean, not a 60, faster than it ever did before. And yes, it just, the sound was completely different. It just utterly altered the car itself. Hmm. And like I said, this it just seemed odd. It seemed utterly incongruous that something that was such a part of the Cobra when it first came out in the 1960s, you know, it 
big rasping farting V8 just wasn't there anymore. Yeah, you know, change, if you've never seen one before, yeah, and you stuck uh, in a combustion engine one next to it, yeah, it would, I, mean, I would imagine that would mess with your head a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I said I saw this and thought, wow, <laughs> you know, it's just. I mean, that, that's it. That's just us being enthusiasts. You know, we know what a Cobra sounds like, or what we think a Cobra sounds like. And this ties in with how we're conditioned to the car and what a car does, what it means, how it does it. You know, an, a, an electric mobility is going to require new ways of regarding things, new ways of consuming, new ways of experiencing. You know, how we do automobility. You know, it's utterly change, and it's how ready we are for that change. How can we do it? You know, will we struggle? Will we just adapt as we go along, as we've ever done when we've had new technologies, be it with our tellies or our stereos or our computers? Well, I think it's um, it's dependent on early adopters, as we know, who are prepared to pay a lot of money for new a new idea. Yeah. Uh, and enough of them doing that so that the money can be used to make the technology cheaper and more affordable, or not cheaper but more affordable, um, to the mass market. I mean, we're 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 on or almost on the verge. Uh, if you look at the um, the way the uh, the Model Three will eventually be out. Um, at some point, yeah, uh, probably not. <laughs> probably, let's be realistic. It's probably not going to be in the timescales that's been suggested um, for various reasons. Um, but if you look at um, typical internal combustion engine manufacturers such as Renault and Nissan and uh, people like that, they are so close to electrified vehicles. Um, being accepted by, I think we're really on the cusp of the the general consumer accepting electrified vehicles. I mean, I've talked many times with, or Alan and I have talked many times on our news um, merchant podcast, that as soon as they can get the range reliably over 200, 250 miles, I think that's a magic number for people. The fact that most people don't need 200 miles in a single charge is neither here nor there. But it's a psychological barrier, I think, for many people. And if we can get over that, whilst the car is roughly the the same price as an equivalent combustion engine one, which is very tricky. I, I mean, I'm amazed at how manufacturers are able to do it now. Um, then I I can see much more adoption uh, or a quicker adoption happening, which will then spur on better infrastructure because that's a that is an issue, um, particularly if you don't happen to live in a highly urbanised area or perhaps the southeast. Yes, I'm having a dig at the people who live in London and pretend that electric vehicles are the future and it's perfect now. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, that shows how, how it can work. Yes. I mean, it's it's a great place to do because when I was in London the uh, the other week, I was, okay, there's the there's the charge but i was really stunned at how many electrified vehicles there were there and yeah. how many charge points were being used and stuff like that and yeah you know, i was surprised but in a good way because i could see it, it oh it, it is happening because i live up in the northwest 
and uh, yeah, I've got one public charging point uh, near me, and then the next one is seven miles away, and that's only a single one as well. Yeah, and I'm in I'm in a town of fifty odd thousand people, and we've got one public charging point. So until the infrastructure improves, I mean, I know I know many people charge from home and all the rest of it, but people need the charging points at the destinations as well as along the way. So, um, yeah. Right. I want to just take a, a, a bit of a step back uh, mm-hmm. again, and I want to start investigating your car history. Yeah. Because as you said, you, you, you may be thinking about things uh, ecologically, but first and foremost, you are a petrol head. So mm-hmm. what was your first car? Uh, my first car that I bought and I drove regularly uh, myself was a Mark 14 Fiesta. Mm-hmm. Um, beige it was. <laughs> it was uh, <coughs> the, the, the family that lived next door to me, mum and dad, um, it was her dad that was selling his car. He, he was getting on and he wanted to stop driving. And it was just... Um, a very smart little car. It was about eight year old. It had done thirty thousand miles. You know, one careful pensioner and all that. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, it was fine. It, it was it was okay. Um, I wasn't terribly thrilled with it, but it, it was you know a good car, good history. You know, they say you're buying a used car, you buy the best equipped, best historied car you can afford, and then learn to love it. Mm. Um, I didn't particularly love it. <laughs> Um, was that because of the dynamics or um, the beige or was oh, it certainly wasn't the beige <laughs> um, no it's I didn't think it would be the beige <laughs> <laughs> no it, it was just because what I'd done previously I, I'd been working for um, a Lancervain company mm. and we had company cars we had um, Peugeot 309 diesels oh right okay and oh, okay, fabulous, fabulous cars. Yes, uh, the Peugeot 309 is one of the most criminally underrated cars ever. Um, it went around corners like it was on rails, it was comfortable to drive, you know, to ride, and everything. It, it just, I don't I'm sure there's it. a shrine on Petrol Blog to the 309. <laughs> if, if there isn't, there should be. Um, I just don't get why back in the 80s, Peugeot could make cars ride and handle at the same time. Yes. Whereas now we're of a time where even Citroen are trying to make cars that go around the Nürburgring rather than cope with the peripherique. I mean, it's absolute madness. You know, very much with James May on this. Yes, um, I, I agree with you. Um, being uh, now more senior in years than I used to be, and I've got a family, a young family, I am very much look at a car from a comfort point of view that is quite high up on my list. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's also part of, I don't know, this, you know, what cars are. You know, I mean, my mum my had a, a first-generation Clio um, once upon a time, and I drove it occasionally, and I just thought, this is a lovely, flobbery French car. This is how it should be. This is marvellous. Mm. Um, I mean, the first car I, I drove was my Dad's Allegro. I learned to drive in that. Oh, um, dear. And oh, I will always have a soft spot for the Austin Allegro. Okay. Um I will not have driven one, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm glad I've experienced it because now I can at least talk about it rather than just 
point from afar and make disparaging comments. I can I can say from experience my disparaging comments. <laughs> of course, did you you drove um, Brown Fury, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah. On the day it was hit. Yes, I remember now. Yes, I was uh, I was not driving it at the time, but uh, no, I'd, I'd no, we hadn't just got out of it, but I I'd been in it two cars before. So that I was sad for Graham on that day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I will always have a soft spot. Obviously, I learned to drive in it, and you know, whenever my dad wasn't using it, I would, you know, bumble around in that. Um, so yes, I, I, I will stand up for the Allegro. So, what did you move on to after your Fiesta? After the Fiesta, um, so I, I only had that for a year, um, and my mum took that off my hands um, after the Allegro eventually died. Mm. Um, because while I was learning to drive, my dad had bought a Montego because he wanted a bigger car from the caravan, and it would be useful for me learning to drive, and then my sister learning to drive after that, or whatever. Um, so after that went, my mum took my Fiesta off my hands, and I bought a Metro. Okay. Uh, that was beige as well. <laughs> um, I'm wondering if this is going to be a theme. <laughs> no, no. no the, that, that's it, as far as the beige went. Um, fabulous little buggy. I mean, I got that purely because it was Group 1 insurance. Mm-hmm. That's what I It was a one-litre, basic, boggo city. Three-door, couldn't get more basic. And I absolutely loved it. Cracking little car. So what was the difference in that between that and the Fiesta then? Because on the on the surface they're they're similar. So what um what made you or what, what pulled you into the into that rather than Fiesta? Um it was just a much better car to drive. Um the handling was much, much better. Uh, ride broadly better, you know, occasionally choppy, but then again with a short wheelbase that's always gonna happen. Um and the engine as well. Um, it's only the one litre with all of 45 brake horsepower, but it was a great engine. It pulled like a train. I never had any problem, apart from when it was damp, when it would occasionally run like a pig. Um, what's the point of a, a British car that won't run in the rain? It's like having an Italian car that rusts in the sun. Um, but the Fiesta I had was the economy model. It was the... One with the uh, Venturi Carburetta and the little economy lights on the speedo that used to go red when you're using too many revs. Um, that, that, was, that was hard work. Which is now commonplace again. Yeah, that kind of thing. Certainly, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know, it's just the, the state of tune that brought, you know, the, the economy benefits. It was just, it, it wasn't great. Mm. But it was, like I say, it, at the time, it was good provenance, good price, great condition car, and my mum ran it happily for quite a while after I got bored with it. Um, so how long did you keep the Metro for, then? The Metro I kept for six years, um, which isn't bad for a Group 1 stop gap. <laughs> um, great car. Um, Rust got it in the end, sadly, but it was 10 years when it went, which I suppose isn't bad for that time. Um, I replaced that with a Citroen ZX. Ooh. Yeah. That was a good car. Absolutely cracking car. 1.6 Avantage. Okay. What colour? That was red. Red. That brilliant Venetian red that Citroen do. <laughs> um, I was actually looking at Peugeot 309s um, to replace the Metro. 
Uh, well, I was looking at all sales related to Metro. I even looked at uh, Rover Metros. Yeah. Uh, but this Citroen ZX was from a local Citroen dealer. It was like the bottom of their range, the bottom of their second-hand range. It was much cheaper than anything else they had in the forecourt. Yeah. It was older than anything else they had in the forecourt. Um, but it, it was a family-owned concern, the Citroen dealer in Rochdale then, and it, they were selling it sort of on behalf of a friend of mm. the sons of the guys who owned the company. And it was fully provenanced, and it was... And I drove it, and I thought, yeah, this is great. I'll have that. <laughs> and it was a great, great car, and I had that for uh, 10 years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it was um, 16 year old by the time it went. That had about 120,000 on the clock. So why did why did you get rid? Was it just old age and it was it was partly age and partly believe it or not that was rust that got it. Um, something must have hit underneath my car at some point and had gone undetected and rust had got in because. Mm. Uh, Modulate, it was perfect. You know, there's nothing on the surface. Yeah. The, the PSA cars at that time, they just didn't rust. They were great. Um, and my local garage said, I'm really running out of places to weld onto now. <laughs> uh, it's it's a bit shame. hard. <laughs> yeah, it's such a shame. So, so there we go. So that eventually went into, I can't believe it's eight years since I had that car. My word. And what did you move on to? Uh, that was a, a Punto. Okay. Second generation Punto. Um, again, provenance. Uh, the daft thing was, I've always said with that Punto, me, car culturalist, car obsessive and whatever, and the reason why I heard towards a Punto is because the door mirrors moved. They didn't just fold in, they folded back as well. Okay. Therefore, they are harder to kick off. Right. Because I'd lost about six in about eighteen months of oh. my season previously. Yes, we were having a bit of a rough time in Rochdale with door mirrors. It wasn't just my part of Rochdale; it was all over the place. It seemed to be a, a fashion. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah. It always struck me as odd that we were looking at Pontils purely for the mirrors. And so, what was that like to drive though? It was okay. Hmm. Uh, the engine that that. 1200 engine, you know, it's very smooth, very quiet. Um, yeah, and no, not the greatest ride, and you know, a bit disconnected with the power steering it had, but it was provenanced. Um, it was my dad bumped into uh, the guys who used to own the garage that we go to, hmm. and he said, Oh, blah blah blah, because he saw him at Tesco's and he's putting in a card on the stuff for sale thing. He said, oh, I'm selling me car. I said, what have you got? I said, a Punto. I said, all right. Oh. So, um, so yeah, that's how I ended up with that, that Punto. It was, uh, say, utterly fully provenance, fabulously serviced, <laughs> regularly. <laughs> um, and it was available at the time. So, yeah, went for that. Right. Uh, Never got under my skin, that car, though. No? Never really got under my skin. It was just there. It was a, almost a tool. Yes. Yeah. So what, what, how long did you keep that and what did you move on to? Um, I had that until April this year. Ooh, um, okay. Mainly thought it's time to move on because it was worth about three or 400 quid. You know, it's, what, 14-year-old. Mm. And the front pipe started blowing. 
It's the expensive bit with the catalyst in it. Yes. The car was worth more than the car. <laughs> yes. So with me now having recently graduated with my PhD and right, I'm going to be possibly driving wherever, you know, for job interviews and stuff. You know, it was really do with something newer, mm. um, you know, that, that could stand occasional motorway schleps very easily. Mm-hmm. And so I've got an early instalment on my inheritance and I'm currently driving my Panda. The which generation panda? It's the third generation panda. Okay. Yeah. Surprised because I was looking at second generation ones. Okay. I think they're fabulous, fabulous little cars. I am. I am a big fan of the panda. Uh, I have not been lucky enough to drive one, but I think that the four wheel drive panda will cover virtually everything that most people will ever need. It's it's got enough of a ride height that if there was a little bit of a flood, they could get round that, and they could mount the grass verge, which is about as far as most SUVs and four by fours do these days, anyway. Yeah, yeah, we'll get started uh, on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am going to ask you about that, but ah, I'm, right. <laughs> but I'm 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 going to try and caveat it so that you it doesn't get you too cross. <laughs> um, what engine have you got in that? Uh, it's twelve hundred. Okay. Um, it was, I say, it was on a dealer's fork, a cracking price. I couldn't believe the price of it. Um, so unsurprisingly, when we said any movement on the price, salesman just went no, <laughs> uh, because there just there was nothing around at the price at the time that was like that. It was four year old. It did it done just under eleven thousand miles. Mm. Uh, it was essentially a new car, and it, it just it's brilliant. I absolutely love it. It's such a happy car. Yes, that's that's what I always think when I see one of those. I think you're just a cheerful little thing. You just, I smile when I see them. It's it's one of those cars. There's there's not so many of the new cars or or more modern cars that I look at and I go, oh yeah, that, that makes me smile. But that is one of them. Yeah, it always occurs to me that with so many cars with the snarling aerodynamic aggression and uh, overt sportiness when they're clearly not and all this kind of thing, they're just trying too hard. Hmm. I'm driving me panda. It just feels like everybody's trying too hard. Um, It's just, for me, it's a very cool Do you go into smug mode because you're still going, see, what are you doing? What are you doing? (laughs) Say smug, no. Um, it's just, it's so, it's so obviously in itself and it's not trying to be anything. It just is Hmm. for me because of that. It's a very, very cool car. You know, the the people, the coolest people are the ones who are just effortless, if you like. Yeah. And for me, there is an, an effortlessness to the Panda in its sense of being. And I've said on, um, my dream barn on petrol blog that the panda is the nearest thing we have to a modern day the chevaux or renault four for you know classlessness and utility and and that kind of thing and it's it's everything i approve of and the second generation panda which is what i was looking at before um they're such a good crap to drive yeah they really are um i first drove one when i first drove one for my sister when she was looking at replacing her car under the scrappy scheme 
and I was blown away by this one that we we drove. I yeah. thought it, it weighed about forty kilograms last in my Ponto, and it just felt like a flea. It was brilliant. It rode better. It went around corners better, and it was just it was just like bam, instant. I want one of these one day. <laughs> um, so I was quite surprised when I ended up with a third generation one. Mm. Uh, but like I say, it was just a cracking price. So, um, looking at your uh, your history then of cars, we come back to you in about eight years. You should still have it. <laughs> oh, quite possibly, quite possibly. Um, and of course, we're talking with my history of cars. We haven't mentioned the one that's most important, uh, which was possibly actually the first car I had, um, and I've still got, and that's my Triumph thirteen hundred. Mm. Are you? Um... Is renovating the right word? Or can I get a proper job? Yes, <laughs> that's always been the plan. Um, and we were also when I was sixteen, and I was going to be going to be my first car, learn the greasy bits and all that. Yeah. Um, time, money, and weather never coincided. Um, she so she eventually we got her back on the road. Reason didn't use her that often, but. I'm so loath to get rid of her. She probably deserves better than me, but she's rare. She's original. She's low mileage. Uh, she's never been restored. We bought her. She was a 15-year-old Leyland Clunker, you know, like buying an old Rover 25 now. Mm. Um, but now, I'd say she, there's, there's not many left. And talking about the way the car makes you feel, I still remember one time I was driving her up the, up the road. The sun was out. She's got a Webasso sunroof. And so I had, like, the roof open and the window down and the old original crackly medium-wave radio. <laughs> and sitting on the dock of the bay came on, on Virgin, 12.15 a.m. And, and I just thought, this is just cool as flip. The way it just made me feel, I thought, this is... Wonderful. I'm driving something so distinctive. And, and it's just, you know, and when I when there's the classic car show last weekend and the Dol- Triumph Dolomite Club had a 1300 on there, which was just, it was beautiful. Mm. <laughs> One day mine would be that beautiful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I look forward to it. Um, so uh, you'll obviously have to keep us all posted with progress oh, yes. when you get the chance to get going again yeah. with it. Um, right. I want to move back to your PhD. Now, yeah. um, as we are all aware, there is, uh, oh, I mean, there probably always has been, but there really is a, a massive change in the motoring universe in in the way that cars are being perceived and what people are thinking is the future for mobility and cars and transport bearing in mind that there is a lot of effort and money being ploughed into electrification of uh, the vehicle and also autonomous driving from your phd how do you think we can get there do you do you see an easy path or do you see that there has to be many things happen across a wide battlefront almost across a a wide front that a lot of things have to happen in which to gain adoption and acceptance from uh, 
us, the general public? I think one of the key things is um, exposure to them. On a um, personal level, pe- people individually being exposed to them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, people with various vehicle trials and one that was done, um, it was coming to its end just as I started my PhD, um, which Coventry University was a part of the cabled trial, Coventry and Birmingham Low Emission Demonstration. And they were finding that people who had experienced them liked them. Um, they were surprised how they drove, um, found that they actually fitted their lives. Mm. Um, and and this, this would, uh, despite that, with the authenticity, because a lot of the cars that were used on the trial um, were uh, the Tata and Indica. Uh, the second generation one, which had been converted to uh, electric power by Warwick University. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people I spoke to who were taking part on that trial as, as part of my PhD, they'd all driven that particular car. Um, and any, I would say any dissatisfaction they had came from the fact that it was a Tata Indica more than the fact that it was an electric car. And... Again, the authenticity, the fact that it, the Indica wasn't designed as an electric car, you know, this conversion, it was all very apparent. It's one or two people that it felt like a prototype. Hmm. Um, and from what I read around on other trials, people are, are just really surprised how, you know, they learn to fit. You know, because we all know that a lot of the time our cars just sit out there and do nothing. Yep. Um, so we don't rack up the miles that we do. And one, there was one body I spoke to who, um, that's for the like a PR agency uh, that were involved with the trial. And they suggested, you know, all these second cars that people have, if everybody had a second car when they traded that in, got an electric one, because the second car basically bumbles around domestically, yep. never racks up a lot of miles. Um, you know, it's absolutely ideal. Um, you know, it's, if people who have a two-car family, if they have the internal combustion engine for the fabled trip to Scotland, which everybody cites, but not everybody makes. Yes. <laughs> um, and the electric car as a second car. You know, I've even suggested like to my mum, you know, if when her Cleo dies, um, if, you know, she would she consider getting an electric one? You know, I mean, I don't know the answer yet. <laughs> but uh, but I think exposure is key. I think consistency of policy is key. Policy uh, from who though? Because I've got some opinions on consistency with these things. But what, what, when you say uh, consistency of policy, who do you mean that from? Uh, well, certainly from government, whether this is European or national. Um, you can't say European anymore. Why not? Um, because I mean policy just keeps changing and incentives just keep changing Um, everything's just so fragmented Um, I mean we have like different charge points you know different schemes in different areas and they all have different cards and different keys for different charges and, and that's simply not going to help 
Yeah, that's that's yes, something that, that that I think holds it back. It it puts an extra barrier, an unnecessary barrier in the way that there's you know people are going. Oh, have I got the right? Am I in the right um, uh, network? Uh, is my car got the right socket? Have I brought the adapter with me? And all these things, um, and that that needs to to change. I mean, well, you see it with phone chargers. If we can't get phone chargers right, then my hope isn't high for car charging. But it's that <laughs> sort of thing that needs to happen. Could just use one plug, please. One plug exactly. and make it work, <laughs> because then, then that has removed several considerations someone has to make to before they get in their car. Yeah, I mean we we have standardised petrol pump and diesel pump nozzles after all. Mm. Um, I mean, a hundred years ago in this country, um, different areas had different voltages on their local grids. You know, now we have the national grid. You know, yeah. which just makes things just so much easier. And like I said we have standardised fuel pump nozzles. Um, so all these different keys and sockets and God knows what, it was left to the free hand of the market and we've got a mess, basically. Yep. Um, and that needs sorting out. Um, we have consistently mixed messages from our greenest government, never. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, what George Osborne did in the budget, announced in the budget a couple of years ago, but changes to business in kind, uh, benefit in kind for company cars mm. were... Um, that was raised from zero on electric vehicles to 5%. You know, and it's just like some of the stakeholders I've got to part my PhD said, he's just trying to kill the market stone dead, isn't he? Well, I I think it's it was not so much try and kill that market, but it's more that the motorist is a cash cow for the government. Oh, absolutely. And by the adoption rates, um, limited though they are in the overall grand scheme of things, uh, it still makes a massive difference to the government's coffers, and they desperately need and needed then, and still need cash. Um, so uh, it was, it was almost inevitable. It was very sad. And if you're looking for things to be adopted quicker, uh, then it was a silly move. But from a purely cash point of view, which is what they're all obviously doing it for, um, then it would. It was going to happen, and we just have to suck it up and get on with it. Unfortunately, yeah. and it's it's not. It doesn't help anything, uh, particularly yeah. as you you look at London and they're going to introduce a dirty fuel, a uh, diesel charge, um, and you think, well, you know, twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, we were told diesel was the future by the government. So you're sort of thinking. Come on, guys. And I don't want to make this too political or anything, but the government as an entity just looks at things and does... They are, they are looking at it from a different angle than often what they say they are. So, Yeah, I mean, it's... Every, everything was chasing low carbon and purely by dint of the fact that diesels do more miles per gallon, they emit less carbon dioxide per kilometre, even though diesel has more embedded carbon in it than does petrol. Mm. Um, but one thing it does show is that whether you're talking uh, diesel's lower carbon dioxide per kilometre emissions versus more nitrous oxides and sulphur oxides, or whether you're talking petrol's higher CO2 per kilometre but less nasties, 
we can't have it all with the internal combustion engine. No. That's the thing. We can't. And we've got this is why we need to try and reconcile ourselves to a more environmentally friendly automobility. I mean, my default phrase is low carbon automobility, but clearly, I mean, especially after diesel gate, it's an awful lot more than that. I mean, some of us have always realised that. I mean, these people who said, we were told diesel was green, have clearly never stood behind a bus as it's pulled away from bus stop. Mm. You know, you know it's not environmental. And the government at the time was told that pollution well, was going to be a major issue, particularly at the rates that uh, were being hoped of adoption of diesel cars. Yeah, and, and it's certainly what we're getting, certainly lab emission, uh, carbon dioxide emissions down for petrol cars as well. Mm. Um, I'd say at least in the lab. Uh, but w- we've got another problem with that now, I think, because with, you know, we don't have, obviously we don't have the smogs, the pea supers that were prevalent back in the 1950s and whatever. Mm. It's, it's a different pollution now. Um, because internal combustion burns a lot more cleanly now than it used to, the stuff it spits out are necessarily smaller. They're, you know, they're still there, but they're smaller. Yeah. And so now it affects us in different ways. You know, it gets into our bloodstreams now. And there's research recently showing that burnt metal deposits are showing up in people's brains. You know, so it's like as they're getting cleaner, you know, they're presenting a whole new set of health problems. Um, I mean, there was this paper that came out earlier this year, and I was asked to comment on by uh, Alex Robbins when he was writing for The Telegraph. Mm-hmm. And and it was saying how electric cars are worse for the environment than diesel cars because they're heavier, so therefore they kick up more road debris. And that's just nonsense. And they use their brakes more as well because they're heavier well that's just nonsense anybody who's driven an electric car knows you don't use your brakes hard you know um so i I basically called that paper out and a lot of people have called that paper out Hmm. so um what do you think can be done by manufacturers to make sure that people stay engaged with electrified and autonomous vehicles because that I think is a big hurdle for them that if a car will drive itself on, I know this is a few years down the line yet, but if a car will drive itself from where it picks you up to the destination you want to go to and uh, it's electrified, how does someone get engaged with that vehicle or do we or do they need to change our perceptions of what engagement is or do they just accept or do we have to accept that now on uh, an autonomous vehicle will just be a white good that does a job for us do you think well this is one thing i wondered about the transition from internal combustion to electric cars for example you know it's it's a bit Clarksonian to describe the engine as the heart of the car. Mm. But you can't deny there is an interaction there, whether it's manipulating the gear lever, the pedals, the different intonation the engine makes while you're in gear and going up and down the rev ranges. And this is what I was trying to tap into with my PhD, how people experience that. You know, um, because people don't think about driving. 
you know, it's just something that you get in and you do, and people just expect to have the right to do it. Mm. You know, it's all part of how we're conditioned. I mean, when Google say, oh, our car does 30,000 calculations per second, how many calculations per second are we making while we're driving a car? I mean, if that's what it takes, I mean, that surely just highlights what a complex task driving a car actually is. Yeah. And yet many of us just do it. We just get in, drive, get out the other side. We don't think about it. Yeah, that's, clear. that's clear that many don't think about it. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's this kind of experience, this precognitive experience that I was trying to get into in my PhD. Because an electric car, you know, yeah, it's certain in the lower range, it's fun. You know, you give it the beans and you're away like a rat out of an aqueduct. Um, you know, but it's not much at the top end, you know, which is perhaps how it should be. It's more usable performance. It's more yeah. sensible performance, I suppose. You know, but how involving is it if all you're going to do is sit there with your foot on a pedal at a certain thing and, and that's it, you know? You well, I, I recently drove uh, on the launch of the uh, Hyundai Ionic. I oh, drove yeah. the electrified vehicle around bits of the Evo Triangle. And it had a sport mode, which I was surprised at. And it did actually make a difference. But I think part of my, I think a lot of my enjoyment was because I was controlling the vehicle. The engine bit was, uh, the fact that I had all that power, you know, there wasn't gears. It's, it's the power is there and it will keep going until it reaches what it can produce. Um, but how I, uh, feel about being take on a journey if I'm in the back of a cab is completely different. Yes, and that's how I expect an autonomous vehicle journey will be. That I will be as though I'm in a taxi. So there's there's no engagement from me whatsoever. I'm just sitting down whilst I wait to get to where I want to go. Yeah, I mean it's. It's what do you want to do on your journey as you travel? I mean, when I was living in, well, I'm still living in Rochdale, but popping down to Coventry as and when while I was doing my PhD, um, I, mean, I had my student rail card. Thank God that was worth its weight in gold. <laughs> um, but using my rail card, it was broadly on a par cost wise with going down in the car. Mm-hmm. But I always, I mean, it might take a little bit longer, but I always regarded going on the train as me time. I can read on the train. I can do stuff on the train. And given the gap between the train arriving at Manchester Piccadilly and leaving Manchester Victoria on the way back, I can have a crafty bite. Brilliant. So <laughs> that's fine, you know. But the thing with autonomous, there's so many questions with autonomous cars. I mean, again, with piloting the cars, you know, if it's going to stop you know, every time it senses an obstacle, you know, how uncomfortable is the journey down a busy street going to be? Mm. We have, you know, we can apply nuance, you know, we can gently apply accelerator brakes, whatever, much more smoothly, I think, than can a machine. Yeah. Um, There are some people who are also citing ethical issues about having a car that will kill you for the greater good. Well, that is to a certain degree a bit of a non-argument because philosophers for many many years have been trying to discuss that so Mm. to then suddenly turn around and go car manufacturers haven't you solved this conundrum is 
a smidgen unfair, to say the least. <laughs> when minds that have been devoted just to that problem cannot come up with a definitive answer. But, I mean, would you want to do that? I don't want to make that decision. I think there's one of me, there's loads of them. Hmm? I mean, if, it, if, it, if it's the uh, individual, then the individual generally is about self-preservation. Yeah, but we have the, the nuance, you know, we can say, well, we want to avoid both, please. Yeah. Do what we can to do that. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, and with... Sort of like tongue-in-cheek, perhaps. You know, how are you going to feel when you're in your autonomous car and you ask it to do something and it'll say to you, sorry, Andrew, I can't do that. Mm. You know, all gets all HAL 9000 on. Yes, quite. <laughs> I'm checking the doors are not locked. <laughs> <laughs> the seatbelt can, can be taken off. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's part of me thinks that it's autonomous cars. We're rushing towards that before, you know, before we can walk. Well, I, um, I think the, the the way that it's being portrayed that we're going to get autonomous cars very soon is is not not reality. We no. will have autonomous features, and it will run autonomously uh, for short periods of time. But full autonomous um, driving is not going to happen anytime soon. I mean, we're talking tens of years because oh. because. Uh, the infrastructure is not set up for it. And uh, psychologically, we are not ready for that. I don't think we are. Um, so I'm still wondering, you know, how I'm still looking at how, you know, we can move towards a low carbon or a more environmentally friendly automobility, whether this is electric or hybrid or just not buying SUVs. Um, <laughs> what about a hybrid SUV, though? Uh, I'm sorry. It's, whenever I see an SUV, I just think that's a car that is bigger, fatter, heavier, more dynamically inept, less efficient than it could be. Yes, uh, all all those points are true. Um, however, um, I mean, you know this yourself that people buy them because they feel safer in them. Whether they are or not is a different matter. But yep. their perception is they feel safer. Um, I think there's a certain degree of uh, the the seating position gives people also uh, an ego boost. Oh, without a doubt. Um, you know, it's the tall chair, the big chair, and you come and meet me and have a meeting, and I'll put you in a small, uncomfortable chair type thing. There's there's a lot of that going on as well, um, and and then there is uh, a lot of people seeing their neighbours buying one and going, oh, I must have one as well. Yeah, I'm just, you know, it's like the chicken and the egg. What came first? You know, the, the, the motorist or the SUV? Mm. Uh, you know, why, why are those deemed to be desirable and prestigious? You know, I mean, it's... Because we're, we're now seeing manufacturers trying to make them sporty or not as... Well, if you look at the, the, the new Alpha that just got revealed, I mean, that's only... That that must ride about the same height at the bottom uh, as a normal hatchback or saloon. Well, yeah. And, and you sort of think, well, it's not really an SUV now. I mean, these aren't SUVs. These are just taller hatchbacks and estates. Yeah, they're just dynamically inept, fuel inefficient. Um, and for what? Um, it's. I just don't... 
I don't like, I mean, for me, it's sticking up two fingers or giving the automotive finger to the environment and to other motorists. Hmm. I mean, the way they just block visibility, um, if nothing else, it's just, I don't care for them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, if you live in the middle of a field or you have to tow a boat or something, fine. You you need a car that that can do that. Yeah. But... um, Again, tongue-in-cheek. If your idea of off-road is Tesco's car park, then I'm sorry you're doing it wrong. Mm. Um, I mean, lots of regular cars now are bigger uh, because of safety things um, than what they used to be. I remember when my Triumph was being towed to her current winter shelter, and I was following behind. There's a mate of mine who was a garage, and he was towing it. And we're going along this street, and... Part next on the other side of the road is a Peugeot 207. And I just thought, my God, that looks huge. <laughs> yeah, I remember being parked next to a... It's quite stark. Yeah, I remember being parked in a Mark 1 Focus next to a um, latest generation Clio, and they were virtually the same size. Yeah. And, and the, I knew cars were getting bigger. But that really, really struck me of how much bigger they are getting. Um, but anyway, so right, I want yes. to get to the point of uh, the show where I ask you some quickfire questions. Yes. And the idea is, and I, I'm, I'm trying to talk to myself here, uh, that I don't comment <laughs> on your answers. <laughs> I'll feel free. So I'm going to ask the question. You will... Answer in what you feel is uh, your answer. I will then move on to the next question. Um, that is the idea. So let's right. see how it goes from my point of view for a change. Okay. <laughs> I fail miserably at this every week. <laughs> so, right. right. I will start with what currently excites you about the motoring world? Uh, I would say it has to be the move towards a more environmentally friendly automobility. And what worries you about the motoring world? Uh... The rise of SUVdom and <laughs> wider um, attitudes on the road. Not necessarily because of SUV drivers, but just generally, people are less tolerant, less patient, less capable. Occurs. What has been your favourite car to drive, and why was that? Oh, oh there's so many, and for different reasons. Um, I mean, the Peugeot 309 comes to mind because it was... You know, just a surprise. You don't expect it to do that. Um, at the SMMT test day in 2013, I drove a Porsche 911 for the first time, and that was nice. Um, at the uh, local vehicle event at Millbrook in September this year, and I drove the BMW i8. So that around the Alpine track and the high-speed bowl, and that, that was very pleasant. Yes. Day. <laughs> yes, uh, and there's also my Triumph thirteen hundred. Just the way that it made me feel. I've never felt that cool in my life before or since. What has been your least favourite car to drive, and why was that? That was the Mark Five Ford Escort, without a doubt. <laughs> um, I only drove it for about a, a mile and a half round trip. It was went to a friend's barbecue later than others. And they run out of charcoal. So as soon as I'd just got there, so I was still sober, I was asked would I pop down 
to Asda's and get some charcoal. So I went in his car and it was off. The worst thing I've ever driven in my life. <laughs> what car would you like to own next? Uh, own next? Oh, I suppose my next car would could well be electric. Don't know which one. The Leaf is a very accomplished car. The first car I ever drove that made me feel chilled. Um, I'd like to try an i3, but I turned down my chance of that to drive an i8, which <laughs> is my, my PhD. Um, um, I, I, I don't know. There's just so many, again, for so many different reasons. I'd like, I'd like to think the next car I'd be driving on a regular basis would be a beautifully restored Triumph 1300. Oh, that sounds perfect to me. Yeah. Okay, then what is your favourite <laughs> road to drive on? <laughs> um, I'd have to say it's got to be the A82 through Glencoe. It's just so majestic in every way. I do like that road. Mm. I was lucky to have driven on there when it was pretty empty and the yeah. skies were very atmospheric. I, I Clear blue skies, my Citroen ZX. And the roads were empty, and it was a fabulous blat. It really was. Not very ego, but fabulous. <laughs> uh, what is the most pointless optional extra you've experienced? Oh, I don't know. I haven't. I've always had pretty basic cars. Um, I really can't think. I think, I don't know. The most pointless thing I ever saw on a car was, again, the Mark V Escort uh, at a motor show when they had, like, the warning lights and it had a picture of the battery and a line pointing to the bonnet. And I just thought, well, if you don't know that your bonnet's, your your battery's under your bonnet, should you really be driving this? (laughs) Um, Okay, we'll take that then. Um, who do you think I should talk to after speaking to you? It's surely got to be Major Gap, hasn't it? Okay. How many people have said that? Uh, you're number two so far. Oh, right. <laughs> I thought I'd be number 11. No, number two. So uh, he's on the list, and um, I shall. Uh, I, I, have, I am lining up my badgering process. Um, so I will... Oh, fa- failing, that, failing that, I, I think Dognob. Number one, yeah, he's on the list as well, actually. Ah, but I don't, I don't know how much bleeping out I can manage. <laughs> if if talking to him is similar to his Twitter, <laughs> you know, with, with genuine enthusiasm, or there's so many people on Twitter that have just got you know the enthusiasm. It's it's been been fabulous. You know, it's what Twitter's for. Yes, <laughs> I agree. I agree. If it were, if it wasn't for Twitter, then I wouldn't be uh, doing a podcast, and I wouldn't be doing this show, and I wouldn't have had fascinating 140 character conversations with you. Uh, I wouldn't have met the people I've met. So I I am a very big fan of Twitter. I know for many people they have problems with it, and yeah, uh, that because of other people, it's not Twitter itself; it's other people. But I've been lucky so far, and I'm I'm very grateful for it. Yeah, I mean, I've always said, certainly academically, uh, the stuff I've learned and found out, contacts I've made, people I've met, conferences I've kept in touch with, Twitter's just been brilliant. Yeah. 
Right. Uh, well, uh, thank you for that. So what, what would be the best way uh, for people to follow what you do or keep in touch or get in touch with you? Um, well, I've Twitter and at <laughs> I have a blog, which I haven't posted on for a bit, and I really should do more, which is uh, autohabitus.wordpress.com. Okay. I'll have uh, a link to that in the show notes. Um, and that's about it. I don't do Facebook. Um, lots of people have said, go on it. Uh, I've always been loath to. Um, I always call it Stalkbook because of the way it stalks you around the internet. You know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a fan of the, uh, <coughs> of the blue site. Um, it's not for me. So. Um, so, yeah, basically it's Twitter and uh, my blog, which I really should do more on. Okay, well, um, we will wait. We will we will keep refreshing the page then until you do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for uh, coming on and chatting to me. It's fascinating. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours about um, culture, society, cars, the future. Uh, I think it's been utterly brilliant. Thank you very much for coming on. Well, thanks for considering me. Um... I mean, since we're both northwest, we really should meet up for a drink sometime. We should, we should, we will, we will organise that. If I can uh, dig a big enough pit to throw my children in for a few hours, <laughs> um, where they won't harm themselves or anyone else, then uh, it's on. Splendid. <laughs> right. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. Right. Thanks a lot, Andy. Cheers. Bye. Right. Cheers. Bye. Thanks once again to Jonathan for coming on Rearview and chatting to me. I hope you all listening found that as fascinating as I did. If you want to suggest someone who you think we should talk to on the show, please do get in touch. If you use the hashtag RearviewPod, we'll be guaranteed to see it in Motoring Podcast Towers. To get in touch with me directly, uh, the best way is to search for Crack Windscreen on Twitter. If you'd like to keep up to date with motoring news and opinions, go try out our sister show, which is the Motoring Podcast. I'd like to ask you to go and leave a rating and review, on, preferably on iTunes or however your podcast app allows you to do that. It makes a difference to me, and it also helps make this show more visible for others. So until next time, that was Jonathan Kershaw, I've been Andrew Clues, and safe motoring.